everyone has the potential to achieve. So we make sure that our qualifications give all students the opportunity to show what they can do and progress to the next stage of their lives. Our UK qualifications are highly valued by employers and universities around the world. As an independent education charity, our income is reinvested back into AQA's charitable activities, funds our cutting edge research and supports our initiatives to help young people facing challenges in life realize their potential. Hello there, welcome to JogPod. Today I'm joined by Narinda Mallon, who's lecturer of Geography Education in the Education School of Environment Education and Development at Manchester University. Welcome to JogPod, Narinda. Thank you very much, John, for having me. I'm really excited about this podcast. Well, excellent. And first thing I want to ask is, because it is always interesting, I think, to find out how people became what they are, how you became a geography teacher. I've just As you know, I've just been speaking to David Lambert in a previous podcast, and he said he always wanted to be a teacher. I didn't. I didn't have that certainty at all. I didn't think about it until I'd finished my geography degree, and then I was scratching around for things to do. And I loved geography at A-level, as you did. But you've been a geography teacher 14 years, an ITT lead for seven, but that wasn't your first pathway, was it? What did you do after A-levels? Well, that's a really, really interesting question. I'm glad you bring this up. So I really love geography at school a lot. But what you've just said, I will come back to in a second, because there is a weird twist of fate about to uh, become apparent. So I did my A-levels, did geography GCSE, did my A-levels, did really well at that, and decided pretty quickly that I didn't want to pursue a geography degree. And that was really because I had this idea that all human geography was just about push and pull factors. And I'm like, well, once you've figured out push and pull factors, you don't need to learn it. But I was really interested in the physical world. So I pursued a a geology degree at Cardiff University and that took four years. Um, Went really well, loved it, loved reading the landscape, loved being outside. I think that was really important. That's been consistent throughout. So loved being outside, loved the field work. I loved the ability to be able to sit on a mountain and sketch and draw, learn the history of the world, the history of the rocks, the landscape, the places I visited were absolutely incredible. And I loved all of that. So I finished my degree after writing a very interesting dissertation and I pursued a master's in radiation and environmental protection at Surrey University. And then I got a job as a graduate radiation environmental scientist for National Nuclear Corporation. And that was a graduate scheme. And that lasted roughly about six months, etc. before I really, John, decided that wasn't for me. I just thought, here I am, and I've really enjoyed learning about the world and the earth and the processes about it. Working in a corporate industry didn't really tick all of the boxes that I needed ticking, if you know what I mean, John. So I did that and I came back and I was really in this position where lots of maybe people who have studied degrees, I see this definitely with students who I teach who are now on my programme, where you can finish something that you really enjoy doing, you've loved your degree, you've loved your studies, you're passionate about your subject, but you can get thrown and propelled into the unknown world of being an adult, that gap between university and adulthood. You've lived life independently and then you're like, oh, no job, no career. What am I going to do? And then before you know it, you're back at home living with your parents and nobody really wants that. Well, I definitely. Unfortunately for me, a friend of mine, Eleanor, was like, have you ever thought about teaching? And I'm like, I have thought about teaching. And she said, well, you know, I'm from Coventry, Coventry Butts College. I don't think it exists anymore. In those days, you could sign up to do a TESOL qualification, which I think was a six week course for totally free and learn how to teach English as a secondary language to people and get your TESOL TESOL qualification. And that was brilliant. John, that was absolutely incredible. Learning how to teach, learning um, how to think like a professional, um, teaching primary school kids, English skills, going and observing lessons, meeting some incredible people. So I was teaching refugees and asylum seekers, basic skills in English, and the stories they were telling me and explaining to me their lives and how they got to the UK, et cetera, what their lives were like was fascinating. And one I was doing some teaching practice in a primary school, one of the teachers came up to me at the end of it and she said, that was fantastic. That was incredible. And I'm like, really? 
She goes, the way that you were with those kids was brilliant. And in those days, we were doing carpet time and reading and stuff like that with them. I don't know if that still exists. We were doing that reading out and she goes, you had a rapport with those kids that we don't really see. You should definitely think about teaching. And that's when it all started. So after my TTL qualification, I taught science and physics as a supply teacher in some very challenging schools. And that didn't put me off teaching. And I applied for my geography PGCE in Manchester. And it all went and it all started there, really. And then one thing led to another, you know, becoming a, a head of department. Sorry, teaching geography first in a school in Wigan. That was incredible. Again, challenging environment, but absolutely fantastic environment at the same time. Then becoming a head of geography in a big comprehensive in Manchester, then moving to the grammar system and then moving to the sixth form system before I came to the University of Manchester. So it's been quite a journey, but coming back to your original question, I remember writing my record of achievement at school, which were these purpley maroon colored plastic files with what your hopes and aspirations. And on it as a 15 year old, I wrote, I want to be a geography teacher. So I must have forgotten about that for about seven years, only to be reminded of it when this folder comes out. And I'm like, well, I knew at 15 what I wanted to do. And that was purely because I had the most fantastic geography teachers in the school that I went to, Cowden Court School in Coventry, this was. Mr. White really stands out as an incredible geography teacher, very passionate, very strict, very motivated, knew a lot about the world. And I thought, this is interesting. And John, you know, I am a British Indian, born and bred here. And I think geography is one of those subjects where really, really could hone into my background. You know, I remember on the curriculum in those days, there was modern farming practices and learning about the Green Revolution. And I remember going to India at the age of 11, et cetera, and going farming and seeing how tractors work and finding about how rice was grown and understanding about the cyclic methods that people were using that we were talking about in this country. For example, homes which were made out of mud, energy was from cowpat, that sort of stuff. Nothing was wasted. All of the crops, anything that you didn't use was fed to the buffalo. You know, understanding why floods happened, because I remember at the age of 11, there was a flood in the Punjab. And that was the first time I was experiencing it, what happened, the devastation it caused. And suddenly I'm in school learning about this as maybe a 13 year old. And then the teacher saying, well, you went, and I was just like, well, I remember, I know what happens because I was there. I saw this happen. And that was brilliant. That felt like, I know my students have done research into this as well. It definitely felt like I was good at it. And that's why I pursued it, John. Interesting, because you said earlier you didn't like human geography because it was all push and pull factors. But then in, in what you've just said there, talking to the students was all about place, identity, those young people and their place and their identity and what they brought and how you brought that out. And your story there is also about place and identity mm. so you actually you didn't dislike physical uh, human geography as much as you thought perhaps i suppose the nature of the subject and this still does exist even though we're fighting it all the time the disparity and the differences between what people think is human geography and physical geography maybe it's through reflection now that you know the human geography is all dictated by the physical geography and making those connections clearer and understanding that it's not a battle of the two, it's understanding the dynamics between them both. So, John, I think I can appreciate what you're saying way more now because I understand those connections. So I did love human geography, but I just found it so easy. I found it so easy because you could always use your own example of why did your parents come to this country? Why are you living in the inner city? I've always lived in the inner city and I've always loved living in the inner city. So always having that sort of personal story to be able to write an exam question or a case study. I remember my A-level um, coursework was based on regeneration of the hill, hill fields in Coventry, going around with a photograph, taking photos of 1960s homes, etc., of rubbish, of parks, of, and assessing what the quality of the environment was, you know, um, why is there nowhere to park a car, all of those sort of things, which I'm just like, this subject is actually everything to do with my life. And I, I never stopped doing that. I've just not stopped doing that, analysing the environment around me. So, yeah, I've really grown into loving both of them even more. And now, 
you know, living where I do in inner city Manchester, etc. I think my life is really formed around human geography way more than I thought. So yeah, that's where we are. <laughs> Mine is pretty similar actually, because I disliked human geography at university. I was at university, perhaps the tail end, I suppose, of the quantitative revolution. So we were talking about Kristala and Lersch and Weber, and it all seemed models that didn't have people involved in it. And I hadn't realised that there was a, perhaps didn't read enough to realise that there was a, a counter to this already developing. I talked to Peter Jackson about this in a previous podcast. He, he enjoyed that aspect of it, the, the making the models fit. And I just, it didn't do it for me. But when we started talking about the things you've talked about, people and place, the influence of the two, the, the, the physical geography influence on all of it, I had a different view. <laughs> which is the GA's manifesto, actually, looking at things with a different view. It, it gave me a different way of looking at geography. So I embraced that human geography as well. I think also, John, one of the things that I'm questioning more and more as a geographer and, you know, running my PGCE and teaching undergraduate geography programmes and having a wider voice, I work for the RGS as a trustee and all this sort of stuff, is really wanting to solve this question why is there a disparity between the way people live in the inner city to the suburbs? Why does pollution increase more? Why are your statistics of health and wealth so much lower in the inner city than on the outskirts and then on the suburbs? Why is there so much more overcrowding? And I say this from a positive angle in the sense that I thoroughly believe inner city living is very good. You don't need a car, you can commute to places, you can walk to places, you can get to the shops. It's a fantastic place. It's a real mix of cultures. You know, I'm two minutes away from fantastic art galleries, museums, coffee shops, places of worship. But why does it mean that living in the inner city, you're almost at an instant disadvantage for those health statistics? I want somebody to answer that question and I'm definitely gonna to try to pursue that question. <laughs> why is it that inner city schools, for example, you may possibly have less educational outcomes. I don't understand the causation of that. Like, what's the correlation? Why does that exist? You know, and that's a very personal story as well. So you can understand why immigrants move to the inner city, good community networks, linked informal work, all of these sort of things. But why does that need to dictate a worse environment? So yeah, so John, we'll have to work on that together maybe. <laughs> it draws you into politics though, and it draws you into decisions that are made, which are difficult for a teacher, I think, to handle, particularly with the DfE talking about how teachers shouldn't be using any materials from um, agencies, from organisations that are producing ideas that are counter to the ones that the government wants to promote, such as not teaching anything uh, about that's anti-capitalism. So I thought that's a dilemma. And it, it takes me to something you wrote on your blog, which I thought was really interesting. Because you said, during my time as a classroom teacher and a teacher of geography, time and time again, I had to question my identity and my positionality. And you do acknowledge being a teacher is difficult, but it's more difficult if you don't acknowledge self and agency and identity. And I thought that that was really powerful. Thank you. I wrote that blog some time ago, and this was really navigating my identity as a university lecturer of geography education. And now I'm responsible for showing, you know, fantastic trainees how to teach geography. But you know what? It's not just, John, a ticking box exercise being a teacher. It's about being a professional. And it's about being confident to be able to navigate many different factors that influence what we do in the classroom. It's not just about teaching about coastal erosion. There is a political angle behind this. And we know that through COVID of what was happening and how important schools and education was. We know why education is important for educational outcomes and kids' next path. And we know how it can change people's lives. So suddenly, you know, I was this individual who was working for industry, et cetera, and logging hours and billing hours, et cetera, which was fine. And that was quite capital, but it didn't really fulfill my own personal needs. But when I became a teacher, you know, I suddenly realized that this is what I've got to teach, but why am I teaching this? 
Um, what do I really want these kids to learn? And I think geography is a fantastic subject because it does give us an avenue to do this. Suddenly I was thinking about what do I want to teach? What is geography? How do I teach it? What is the important geography? Which places do kids need to learn about? How much detail need to learn about this? And then I'm teaching that and I'm thinking, am I teaching this the right angle? You know, am, am I actually doing justice by teaching something like development indicators? Because development indicators is a very Western idea, I think, when you can monitor happiness or success in very different ways. So that's quite political in itself. And then the positionality of actually being a geography teacher, what do I do? You know, if a kid comes out with an overly liberal or slightly right wing answer, is that correct? Is that wrong? Am I in a position to challenge it? Or should I just appreciate that this is a different way of them thinking? What is my position in that? Am I here to control the way people think? And this is what I meant by that blog. And also teaching is, you know, where you're questioning your identity is, I see this with my trainees, and this can be one of the hardest things to navigate all the time is, is the level of judgment that training that teachers do have to face. You're comparing yourself to your best self. You want to do the best as you can. I've never come across a trainee in all the years that I've been doing it who doesn't want to be the best geography teacher they can be. So you're holding high expectations for yourself. That's incredibly challenging. But then you're having the expectations of the kids that you're teaching and all the exam pressures that comes with that. And then the parental pressures because everyone wants to do really, really well. And then you're comparing yourself to other teachers. You know, how are they teaching? This activity worked really well for them, but it doesn't really work very well for me. This is a fantastic resource, but it doesn't really work for me. Why is that? You know, and then you're sort of comparing yourself to uh, the judgments of other people that have with you. And that's really difficult to navigate as well. So you could be working for a head of department who's absolutely fantastic, and they have a very fixed idea of what good geography teaching is. And then they compare you and then you're assessed against that criteria. And the more I've done my job over the years, the more I've reflected on this, there is no one perfect way to teach a geography lesson or be a teacher. And also at the same time, you can't lie who you are. You absolutely cannot lie. Some people have said in the past that being a good teacher is essentially acting, but I don't think it is acting at all. You have to bring self into it. You have to take some agency. You do have to think about your own identity and your own position, and you've got to balance all of those things for the better of the good of the kids. So when it comes to the government dictating and telling us how we should do it, the power of geography, and this is why I think you have to be a geography expert to teach geography, is that you understand that there is no right way. Each document has wealth and power in geography, whether that is a leaflet or a pamphlet from a particular positionality or an ideology. And the good geographer will be able to read it, understand it, and make their own judgments, John, of whether this is accurate or not, whether this is relevant or not. Does that help, John? It does. I was going to say I could have done, done with you sitting on, my, sitting on my shoulder when I was reading a book called How to Teach the Perfect, and then with a little squiggle, Ofsted Lesson. And I think it was by Sue De Beer. Mm-hmm. I read it. And I thought, I'm going to have to give up here because I can't do this. It runs to so many pages. I couldn't do, I don't know, 25 lessons a week that fitted that framework, that tick list of everything that I should be thinking about. It was, um, it was a bit of a nightmare. And what it missed, I think, is something that I got also from another book called The Great Eminence by Bob Spooner. Now, that was about being a head teacher. Mm. But it talked about the warmth and the personality that you need for a place to run as a place of safety and of quality learning, which is which transcends any sorts of, of tick lists. I totally agree with that. You know, being a teacher at any level, I think in order for any child or any student or any trainee to do well, they've got to be in an environment. They've got to be in an, in an environment where they do feel safe. Um, And that's safe physically and that's safe mentally as well, where they can express their ideas because geography, learning geography and being able to show what you've learned in geography is all about expressing your ideas, sharing your ideas and concepts and being challenged by others. And I think the fear is, John, that I have that maybe sometimes at present, some teaching is at the moment turning into quite dictatorial territory where 
you know, you just say, as I do, I'm going to show you how to do it and then you do it, that sort of stuff. You know, I'm not going to say old school teaching styles because I think there is some worth in some of those activities. But I think the pursuit of geography should be about allowing a diverse discussion, diverse range of activities, diverse range of teaching styles and allowing the teacher to be able to teach what they do want to, you know, and they are physically very passionate about. I'm going to pin you down with a difficult question then now after this, because we've talked about good teachers are reflective and not about the scope of their pedagogy just, but about themselves. So what, what do you think makes a good geography teacher? I think without sounding like I've contradicted everything that I've just said, well, you know, in the past, I've had trainees who have had geography degrees and some who came to me without a geography degree. Was there a difference between the two? There absolutely was, but I'm not going to say it's a positive or a negative difference because both trainees were really, really fantastic. But the geographer did have a concrete idea of what geography was. They did know that geography is essentially about teaching. I know you had David Lambert here talking about core knowledge, conceptual knowledge and the concepts of geography. They use the concepts of geography, place, scale, change to dictate what they're teaching and how they're talking to the kids. Whereas if you've not pursued geography, I think, at a university level at very least, you don't really understand those concepts, but you start talking about content more. And then there's gaps that start to appear in activities and what the kids are learning because they don't have that. They don't understand how talking about coastal erosion in, for example, let's just say in the UK, and then talking about migration in the middle of India from rural to urban, how they are essentially the same because you're talking about movement, you're talking about interaction, you're talking about displacement, that sort of stuff. So a good geography teacher is definitely one who has a good understanding of the concepts of geography. They definitely understand that. They definitely have an understanding of what it means to be a better geographer, John. I can take kids on a journey in a lesson I can take them from the comfort of their own home to a different place in the world. And that could be anywhere now. You know, YouTube has changed the game in how we present places in the world. YouTube has really started to, if you look hard enough, provide different angles and different understanding of places, which is really, really, which is really understated at the moment. So definitely use it. They can do all of those things. But I think as a good teacher, you still always, I personally feel, that you've got to be able to deliver the goals of your subject and develop the goal, deliver the goals and the needs of the kid. So without sounding too contrary, contradictory or politically motivated and stuff like that, I was responsible for getting exam results. I was responsible for getting kids prepared for an A-level. I was responsible for teaching them in a way that keeps them interested, motivated, excited and creating memories you know, and that could be writing case studies, for example, about gentrification in London and making up stories and characters such as Portia, all of these people, all of these fascinating case studies I've written over the years and card sort and mysteries and inquiries I've written, you know, which were totally fictional, but embedded in geography processes with the kids getting and creating memories of how they can use those skills in their geography exams and be really, really successful. So what it does mean is, you know, to be a good geography teacher, Really understand your subject is really important. Really, really understand the aims of assessment, what the point of this lesson is. What is the point of this lesson? What is the point of the scheme of work? What is the point of the year? You have departments and they're running the writing schemes of work, but I would often ask my department, what are we trying to really achieve at the end of year seven? What are we really trying to achieve at the end of year eight? How are we doing that? I think also, I don't know if we're going to go into more detail about what I think makes a good geography lesson. I think we'll ask me about that. But I think understand what you need to deliver and understand that being a good geography teacher is being and or having or becoming that professional who has an eye on so many different things. Being a political agenda, being subject associations, being on top of your teaching and learning, being a professional and following the teacher standards and all this sort of stuff. So just be yourself, but make sure you have an eye on all of those other factors that make you into a fantastic geography teacher and a part of that is still go and travel and visit places and open your eyes 
and keep learning and keep challenging yourself as much as you challenge your kids. That keep learning is an interesting one because it's, it's I think this is often forgotten. So you, you've become a teacher, you've gone through your first sessions of, of support with some colleague and then that's it, you're left to it. You've written a very interesting piece, a very self-reflective piece where you considered on the blog how you could have been even better. If you, the person you are now, had been sitting on your shoulder then giving advice along the way, tell us a little bit about that process and, and how, how you could have been even better. Wow, that is going away some time. How could I have even been better? I think when I started as initial geography teacher, as an NQT and stuff like that, the political surroundings of what being a teacher was very different, John. It was a time where, rightfully so, we were very child-focused. It was all about emotion. It was all about learning to learn. I think that was a, a strategy where we were actually teaching almost about cognitive science and making sure the environment was correct and teaching kids how to learn, so strategies how to learn. And I think maybe, and in the sort of schools that I was working in, which were challenging schools, and sometimes everything was, a successful lesson was almost demonstrated by a quiet class. You know, it's, it's a great lesson, he's a great teacher because the kids are all quiet. I think maybe the pursuit of those sort of outward characteristics of a calm class, a class that is sat copying or writing, who are being very, very polite, were considered to be indicators of a good teacher and a good lesson. And I think that's totally changed. I don't think that is. I think personally, the one thing that I really have realized the older I've got is this idea of where do these kids need to get to and how am I going to get them there? And often on my train, my, with my trainees and stuff, we do have to deliver examination specifications and A-level specifications and stuff like that. And whether I agree or not with the national curriculum or whether I agree or not with specifications, the way that they ask questions and stuff like that, I think it is a duty of all teachers to know exactly what that final piece of assessment looks like. What do you have to deliver? What do you have to teach? What skills do you have to teach? You know, how do these kids answer those questions in detail, in the right environment, in the right time setting? How much geography do they know? What are those key words? You know, are you aware of what those key words are and what's exactly needed? So I'm going to say this. I think a lot of my colleagues might not agree. I've always said to my trainees, eyes on the spec, always eyes on the spec. This is, and I'm going to be quite selfish in this as well, you know, what is the one thing that you can do? Of course, geography teachers have the ability to change the world of kids. You can take them to places they've never been. Happened to me. You can travel the world with kids. You can open a kid's background to different backgrounds, something they've never experienced. You know, some of the best activities I've ever did was like a day in the life, taking photographs of your life every hour. I did some charitable work and then comparing it to a kid in Bangladesh, for example. Mm -hmm. You can open their world and you can open their horizon. You can make them better citizens. You can get them recycling. You can get them thinking about air miles and how ethical it is to eat a certain brand of chocolate and all of those things. You can mimic sweatshop conditions by activities or role play. You can get them to be confident readers by reading out poems about river erosion. And, you know, you can get your year sevens pretending to be water droplets and all that sort of stuff. It's all fantastic. You can go in there and get them excited and like rattle on tables to mimic an earthquake or a volcano. All of that sort of stuff is really, really great. But you must make sure that unfortunately, and, you know, maybe fortunately, one of the ways that this society uh, so, uh, man, uh, measures success is through exams. So we must do whatever we can to make sure that we are preparing our peoples and kids to be successful in those exams, because I think that has a major factor, a major outcome, you know, of how well they will progress later on in life. I think it is just the way society is set up, whether I agree with that or not. You said I was going to ask you about um, what makes a good geography lesson, and I am, but I'm going to go back to something you said, because really you're talking about curriculum making there. Yeah. What a good curriculum looks like. When I first started teaching, and for quite some while, actually, because I'm about 108, there was no national curriculum. And when I said that to young teachers, they've gone, what on earth did you teach then? How did you decide? 
Well, to be fair, I, I lived in Sheffield at the time. I did my degree in Sheffield and the headquarters of the GA was in Sheffield and the, the Fleur Library was there with a host of ideas about how to put together a coherent curriculum. When I first started teaching, second year, as we called it, so Y8, we just taught from a book called Under the Southern Cross. Check it out if you can find a historical mm. copy of it. It had a fellaheen working um, an Archimedes screw in, um, along the Nile. And that was our vision of what Egypt was like. This chap in a long flowing white coat irrigating his land. Mm. So it was about 40 years out of date by the time we were using it to teach from. So mm. I had a look at, um, at a different curriculum. So I'm going to ask you then that, that same question. I, I took my ideas from, from the GA and from, from a range of different writers. What do you think a, a, a good geography curriculum should do, albeit it's got to get them as well to the exam, which was my target, yeah. I suppose. What would, what would you categorise as, as a good curriculum? I think we posed this question to trainees at the very beginning of my course, John. How relevant, how suitable do you think it is the geography curriculum? So they go into the analysis of that pretty quickly. And I'm always blown away by all of these fantastic undergraduate geographers with the most fascinating dissertations. And I'm like, why is this not shown on a curriculum? You know, one of the standout features I had a trainee this year who wrote a dissertation on food banks, for example. And we know what's going on with the rising cost of living and some people are facing the crunch quite shockingly compared to other people, etc. And she was working in a food bank and she wrote a dissertation in a food bank. And I can easily see that fitting into a school geography curriculum. Why do people have access to food and other people don't? And not just in a, you know, a less economically developed world country, but even where they are living at the moment. So I think relevant, topical, modern issues are, well, not modern because these issues have been going on for a long time, but bringing them to the forefront. I think it's got to be relevant to today. This is what's happening in society. These are the challenges that we face, how are we preparing them? You know, how are we preparing the kids to face these challenges? So it could be environmentalism, it could be recycling, it could be energy, it could be cost of living. I think we should also be teaching about stuff that what kids want to learn about, the issues that a kid faces in society. That should be in curriculum. So often not just adult ideas, you know, about solving climate change and stuff like that, but I think bring it really home. And I think this is what geography curriculum should do. They should go from local to global. But I think there is a bit more space for the local understanding. I remember a head teacher, Janice Rawlings, years and years and years ago, having this discussion that why is it geography teachers are so keen to take the kids abroad when a lot of the kids have never been to their own capital city, such as London. And I think that is true. And I think that's, that should be, we should really make a case that our curriculum is taken from understanding their local place, having a real good sense of identity, and then exploring your own country and then talking about different places. I think that's really, really important. But when we come to local issues, I would really like to see curriculums facing a lot more talking about more local issues. I would love to see kids measuring pollution on roads. I would love to see kids monitoring noise pollution, distances, access to travel, facilities, um, recreational space. We know through COVID that recreational space was incredible, uh, incredibly well used. I know I live very close to Platfields in Manchester. I've never seen the park so busy. Suddenly all of these people are realising this local amenity. Why is it so important? I'd love that to really, really come. So to address that question, construct a curriculum which allows kids to answer the questions of the future. We say this all the time, that the kids are going to be working in a world that doesn't exist yet. I think that's important. We know that kids are really, really savvy with uh, social media, etc., cetera, uh, technology, YouTube, WhatsApp, TikTok, and stuff like that. And in a strange way, that is also geography now, John. Understanding the world through a camera lens, through TikTok, through a filter, that is also very, very interesting geography, which I think needs to be discussed on our curriculums. Understand the local more, definitely. Why is my environment the way that it is? Um, I'd like to see a different slant as well. Still, sometimes I come across school curriculums which are based on 
old ideas of geography that I think are misplaced. You know, how crime, for example, what's crime like, et cetera. And I was always anti-teaching that, just like kids know what the crime is like. They know the area they are living in. But let's start discussing why. So the deeper question, why is this area like it is? I'd also like to see more representation of the people who have come to Britain, for example. So I'm going to be quite selfish here. There is a story to tell in school geography curriculum about migrants who have come to this country, where they lived, how they lived, what support, what advice they could access, how language was a barrier, how they navigate, how they live in communities, within communities, how some people are seen and not seen, how difficult it can be. I'd really like to see that side of geography come out. Because our country, the UK, is very, very diverse. We do have communities within communities. And I think geography does need to start talking about that. Mm. And I know it's quite topical at the moment, but you know we do need to start challenging the way that geography is taught in school. For example, you know, population pyramids is a very easy thing. At the, at the moment, we're still teaching population pyramids as male and female but we know things are changing in society. There is more representation. Maybe there should be non-binary, that sort of stuff on population pyramid. Maybe we should talk, get away from the general ideas that we talk about case studies. We've run these topics on our courses. For example, where are the women? We know that women are likely to be trafficked more after an earthquake. They face more injustices. We know they're likely to be affected more in an earthquake because they're likely to be in the home more. So they're likely to be stuck in the building when an earthquake or something like that happens. But why is that not coming out in the school geography? Why do we still have this idea of just, you know, have this general idea of who people are and, you know, how they are affected when they know it's not that simple. Geography is not that simple. People can survive an earthquake due to wealth, money, power, the quality of their house and stuff like that. That's still not coming out, that people are very living very, very different lives. I think we are still a bit too focused on MEDC, LEDC. We could do with getting away from those sort of very binary terms of LEDC, MEDC, and understanding that people in this country are living very LEDC lifestyles just around the corner from where you are. Does that help, John? Yes, it does. It's interesting because I've just been talking to a, a geography lead in a primary school who's um, changing the way that they're teaching and putting an emphasis on the local and putting an emphasis on, on the children's stories and the, the stories of where they've, they've come from. And it's not only really engaged the children in what she said, but it's also engaged a lot of the, the, the staff who previously had a very Marmite view of geography it was about colouring in and naming countries. That was their, that was their view because that's how they felt they'd been taught. Yeah. And so it's brought on board all the staff as well to a revision of what a geography curriculum can look like and what the purpose of geography is. Yeah, I'm going to make a real political view on this as well. But often or not, you know, inner city schools, etc., new kids who are in the country, BME background, ethnic minority backgrounds, etc., Sometimes there is a bit of an overemphasis on those schools to say, well, you know what, you should be doing this with your kids. You need to take them to these places. I hate that term, raising aspirations, because I think all kids have aspirations and we know that the system eventually takes those aspirations away from some kids rather than others. We know that happens. But I think, you know, the emphasis should also be on that suburban school, that comfortable school. They should have a bigger role in teaching kids what life is like in different areas of the country, in different parts of the city. And not from this thing that geography does really well. We're always the outsider looking in, really get into it, really build partnerships, really construct curriculums with partnering schools in different locations to really get a full perspective of what we're teaching and why we're teaching it. So we get a good, thorough, deeper picture. Right, I am gonna go back to one of the things you raised earlier and drill down a little bit now then. So we've got a good curriculum, we've got a vision. What makes a good geography lesson? I'm going to be, I think, doing my job, you know, which I absolutely love, my vocation. It's very, very easy. And I know this is a time over, time and time over debate. 
that you could be a strategy delivered, delivered style teacher. You know, you could use a technique, you could use a fantastic technique, you could play games, you could record a drama piece, you could film a blog, you could do a TikTok, you could do whatever you want. Those techniques, those strategies. But I've seen it fail time and time again. And in order to have a good geography lesson, I say this to my trainees, so if they're listening to this podcast, they're going to know. Clear eye on the cake that you want to bake in that lesson. I always use the cake analogy. What is the cake that you want to bake in that lesson? What are the indicators of a successful lesson? What will the icing be? What will the sponge be? What will the jam be? And all this sort of stuff. And that comes down to something which Margaret Roberts talks about quite a lot. Every lesson, no matter what you're teaching, will always fail if you do not have, just like a cake will fail, if you do not have quality ingredients. So for me, John, the starting point for any excellent geography lesson has to be the idea of what we want these kids to learn and why. And secondly, it has to be followed by quality geography data and artifacts. Every geography lesson, and this is what I look for, has to have geography data. There can be a bit of a trap where people just go into ideas of what geography is, talking about perceptions. It could be, John, what's your experience? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? But I really want to see geography data. And luckily for us, geography data can mean anything. It could be geographicacy, graphs, data, photographs, aerial photographs. It could be soil samples, holding a rock in your hand. It could be tasting different types of water. It could be a mystery bag full of like shopping items and stuff like that. That is all geography data. Geography data can also be what the teacher is saying orally, what they know about a case study. And then for the kids to be actually doing something with that data. So we're talking about learning theories here. We're talking about Vygotsky being able to process stuff. I want to see kids really engaging in geography data. I really want to see, and I really hone this in, tabletop activities, not PowerPoint-led delivery. Tabletop activities where the kids can have a photograph in their hand. They can annotate that photograph and say they can see a landscape. They can see a house. They can see a factory. In, they can read the photograph like a geographer would. They can really, really identify what's going on. I want to see them engaged in the geography. You know, I want them to see them, you know, playing games about population dynamics and role-playing situations and taking themes on, all of that sort of stuff. So I want to see deep, meaningful activities that progress. So I want to see that card sort activity where the kids are analysing, reading, sorting, arranging, making flow diagrams, making, I don't know, drawing on maps, etc., with desire lines, influence flows. I want to see all of that sort of stuff because I think that is what geography is. It's not just a flat picture that everyone just follows. So rich ingredients, processing of activities, and then what's really, really important. And I see this every day. I, I've learned this from my own practice of playing an instrument, doing sport, etc., etc. How are you getting the kid to show they have learned geography? There has to be that element. And that could be simply asking a kid a question, asking them their opinion, or a, a debate that takes place. Why is Martha moving out of Kensington? What's going on? What does the kid say? What does the people say? What geography are they talking about? Or it could be a written exam question and stuff like that, but that is crucial. What are they doing? What are they saying now at the end of the lesson that they couldn't do at the beginning? So that's it. But for me, if there is no geography data, and geography data also encompasses the concepts and place. Place is very, very important. I make a real case on my course and my geographers that I want to see place mentioned in every geography lesson. It's not geography otherwise. You're just talking about generalizations. If you're talking about the effects of climate change, I want to see how that looks in somebody's day-to-day -day life. I want those kids to understand that it could be Mohammed in Bangladesh or someone like that, how their life has been affected today by climate change. So they leave having a real idea that this is happening today and it's happened in history and it will continue happening. Margaret, bless her, she's forgotten this, but she criticised one of the first things I did when I went to the Geographical Association. I was working on a, a project with Durham University on the geography of disease and risk and Durham with statisticians, so we were working between maths and geography. 
And I'd read an academic paper about an outbreak of measles in the UK that was really difficult to understand. And when you read through what had happened, it was through the Steiner community. And the Steiner community had gone to Portugal, a, a whole group of them, but from around the country for one of their get togethers. And they don't have, uh, they don't take measles vaccinations. They came back to the UK and suddenly there was this outbreak of measles that was, was really difficult to understand and explain. So I turned it into a mystery and we had a, a set of cards. And Margaret said to me, well, where's the geography data? And she was dead right because I hadn't mapped any of it. Once it was mapped, it made a really, well, I thought, <laughs> a really good quality piece of geography. Yeah. I, hadn't, I hadn't thought that little bit through. So it's really important. And also, almost when you, you know, and this applies at any level of education, John, it could be primary school geography, it could be high school geography, it could be university level geography as well. That key idea that geography data has to be there in order for some sort of thinking and processing to take place. The common trap I see, which I judge as not to be the most beneficial of geography lessons, is where you know, we get over fixated by this idea that geography is just about asking questions. You can see lessons which pose three questions and the whole lesson is driven by these kids just giving a self-reflective answer of different disguises of the same question. What do you think about this? Why do you think that could be happening? John, why did you go there? Why didn't you go somewhere else, et cetera? And if we don't introduce new data or new information or geography data, as we say, in different ways, the fear is that John just keeps learning, you know, what he already knows and repeating it to himself without actually learning anything new. Do you see what I mean? So that is so yeah. important. And I think one concern is if you've got somebody doing a lesson observation who's not a geographer, they can see what they think is a quality lesson. Because if you don't understand those concepts yourself, mm -hmm. You fill in the tick list. I said that myself when I was uh, on the leadership team and going in to watch a French lesson. Oh, how did I know whether that was the right quality of French? The lesson was great, but I can't comment on that little bit. And geography, because everyone's done geography and they think they know a bit, I think it's more easy for people to con themselves into thinking, I've just seen a good geography lesson. Mm. But actually, perhaps they haven't. Absolutely. And that's why you know, teacher training programs where we do have the time to be able to reflect on what it means to be a good geographer, what it means to be um, a geography teacher, what is a geography curriculum, what is geography data, how, why are geography um, activities different to other subjects, etc. How do we think differently? What is a measure of success of kids making progress in geography? What does that actually mean? And also geography is so open to debate around everything. You know, we literally can do anything in a geography lesson. And the only thing that makes them link is the fact that the geography teacher knows how to make it work. You know, that's so important. I'm going to ask you a difficult question again now, I think. Um, this came out of my, my chat with, with David Lambert earlier, because we were talking about powerful knowledge and what is it. And it, I think it's like catching fog in a fishing net. Um, John White, one of the academics I'd, I'd read about, argued that most of the school subjects don't provide powerful knowledge. They're not offering that to their students. So I'm going to change the question slightly and just thin it a little bit and say, how much good geography do you see in your travels around schools? How, how, confident, how, how confident do you feel that geography is being taught well? I think that's a really, really interesting question. I have been blown away by some of the schools that I work with and have built partnerships with in the greater Manchester area. And I see incredible geography lessons. I see teachers really going into so much detail and really challenging the landscape at the moment of how we should be teaching in very traditional styles. So we are seeing a return of I'm not going to say old school, I'm just going to say old traditional type geography coming back. And that is really, really uplifting. And I think trainees do have a role in that as well. You know, like they do come out of university experiences and they have me talking to them and lecturing them about the stuff and they take it on. 
I work with some incredible schools and incredible geography departments who are really teaching topics which are so interesting. I was just like, wow, I would never have done anything like that. I would never have thought about this concept. Dean Trestardwick, around the corner from us, Lucy Ribbons is a head of geography. She's a fantastically forward-thinking individual about what she wants these kids to learn and a real idea of she wants them who some of these kids are new to the country to be really proud of Manchester, really proud of the place they are now and how they can impact and change it. I saw a really fantastic geography lesson not so long ago, and it was about positioning of a um, wind, wind farm in Cumbria, John. It was delivered by one of my trainees working at Parswood School with the support of Kevin, a fantastic geography teacher there. And the whole lesson was delivered by such strong geography data, which was essentially just photo analysis. It was purely photo analysis and map work. So this trainee presented a map. She, prevent, she presented photographs of different locations to be able to locate a wind farm. And that's, what, and that's essentially what the lesson was. And the kids just had to figure out site by site which place was going to be the best one for the wind farm. And these kids were naturally coming up with this one, I can see a road, which means they might be able to get there quickly. You know, there's some buildings here in this urban setting, which means that's not going to be really very good. And the teacher was so good at drawing out, well, why, why would you not want a wind farm close to buildings? And these kids naturally are coming up with like, well, I would want to live next to one because it'd be noisy and it looks ugly. And another kid was saying, it looks pretty. That'd be really, really cool. Maybe we could get cheap electricity. And that's when I think this is the power of geography, that you can deliver whatever schools want you to do, but having that professional knowledge of a geographer and really thinking about what geography data is, geographicacy, that data presentation and the process of it, to keep everyone pretty happy, John. You can deliver it. You can take risks. You can do stuff very, very differently and still deliver that final cake, as it were. And what we're talking about as well is very important for our profession as teachers and as geography teachers. It is the geography teacher who may not get to decide at government level or at exam board level of what it is we teach, but they are incredibly powerful, the most powerful, in fact, of how we're going to do that and why we're going to do that and how am I going to make it fun? How am I going to make it engaging? And we must never lose that as a profession. That training to that teacher who's been teaching 30, 35, 40 years, they are so powerful and they really do still have the most important role, the most important role in getting kids to understand what geography is and how they are going to do it. What effect they're going to have on that kid's understanding of geography by the design of their geography lesson. That is so powerful and it's a big responsibility. Sometimes I think it's a shame that these really hugely interesting and well-presented lessons disappear into the ether. The, the, the geography projects that I've been involved with always involved inviting schools in. So we'd have the idea, we'd have the link like we did with geography of disease, but we've done it with several of them. And then schools are invited to take part. Their lessons are then recorded in some way. Yeah. For others to get inspiration from, not to copy, although they could if they wanted to, but to take and use however they see fit. Yeah. Because it's really hard, I think, for a, for a new head of geography. I see this, yeah. We set up um, the Manchester University Geography Teachers Network to address some of the things you're talking about, actually. It started a couple of years ago. Lucy Ribbons and some other people are really, really core on this to understanding that geography departments are still small and we need to get back to this idea of collaboration and networks. You know, with the disappearance of LEA, John, you know, we used to have geography experts who used to talk to different schools and everyone used to get together for a subject association meeting. There does seem to be a bit of a slight recurrence with that. There are some networks. There are some schools and chains of schools who do that. They do have geography leads and stuff like that. But I really want to home into this idea that, you know, Geography is very open up, is a very open to debate of how we teach, what we teach, and why we teach it. And in that, we should also be encompassing collaboration. There needs to be far more collaboration. There needs to be far more opportunity for small departments, such as geography departments, to work collegiately 
with each other, to learn from each other, and take a, an active role in almost mentoring new departments, new members of staff for those successful outcomes. You know, there needs to be that offer, that opportunity to be able to discuss, rather than just school level discussion, which is about assessment exam results, but actually designing curriculum, where we're going to take those kids, what we're doing in, you know, just simple conversations like, oh, we teach this, but we teach it like that. And this was really successful. And John, you've probably been there as well. You're in a new department and you're like, I have no idea where I'm going to go for field work. Just having somebody there to be able to talk to. And I think over the years of me doing this job, it has become that, you know, people are contacting me. Past trainees are like, Narinda, I was on the course five years ago. I haven't forgotten, don't worry. Where can I take the kids? Where can I find this information? And that's really, really rewarding. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really hard, I think, for new teachers, new, new heads of department, if they haven't got that structure. Of course, we, we had it when I was a head of department. We, we had the LEA support and an expert support and the support from the university, which some schools don't have because they don't have the links to a person like you. It's all being done within yeah. the Academy Trust, which can either be brilliant or can just sort of internalise the... Um, the problems that were there already if they're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think on, on that as well, and the way that we've got new technology, this idea that we are thinking globally as geographers, I would really like to see some sort of more collaboration with different parts of the world and how they are teaching geography. I remember years ago where that like web links of a school, a partner school, etc. But it would be great to have that sort of idea because we all know I work with fantastic colleagues at the University of Manchester and talking about how schools in Ghana are teaching geography is so interesting. It's a completely different angle, a completely different position. And I think there is room for our curriculum, for our school geography to have those partners and have those different ways of thinking, which are very place and location specific, but there's no reason why they can't be incorporated into the way that we teach geography here. So I think that's a real opportunity for the future. I'm going to ask you one last question because you talked about this earlier and I always found it a bit of a dilemma. You teach wonderful geography and then you come to the exam. For me, there was a, a, there was a process change there. I did say to my students, right, we've, we've done the work, we've, we've done the learning. Now we're going to learn how to, to pass this exam. That's a complete separate set of techniques. You yeah. can have all the, the knowledge in the world. You go into the exam, you fall to pieces because you, you haven't understood how to deal with that. Absolutely. So how do you marry the two? I think it's, it's really, really important, this. So, for example, you know, we, on my course, we use the cake bake analogy. What cake is it you're trying to bake? Which is really helpful when you're learning how to plan lessons. You know, what is it you're trying to achieve at the end of this lesson? The measure of that lesson or the cake is not purely the tasting of the cake, John. It's also about the techniques those kids have used to mix those ingredients. It could be a part of the success is picking up the spatula and mixing the ingredients together. It could be putting, you know, the cake batter in the tin in the oven. So the point that I'm making here, and sometimes new trainees do forget this, new members of staff do forget this as well. You are not just delivering the content of that scheme of work or that exam specification, okay? You also are delivering, whether you realize it or not, the skills needed to navigate that. It's the day-to-day -day of what you are doing, the skills, of how you are getting there, which you also have to focus on. So eyes on content and the skills for success. And I learned that by running some very, very successful departments and having that clear focus on, they're doing this, they're learning this, but actually they also need to perfect this before they can get to that stage. That's really interesting, actually. That. And, uh, and I think that's a good point to stop. We've considered what it means to be a good teacher. We've considered what a good lesson and a good curriculum should look like. We've inspired our students, hopefully, and they've all passed their exams. <laughs> so they've had a successful outcome. And um, is there any other advice that I've not asked you about that you, with, with all your experience, mm. think is worth sharing with the teachers who are, who are listening and, and still wanting some further advice? Yeah, challenge your prejudices. I think it's really important. 
no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, etc., the way that you are teaching geography, challenge it. So for example, get into the environment. When you're teaching about the inner city, for example, you know, don't be scared. You know, don't just go into the negatives and the positives from an outsider. Be confident to talk about the real negatives that there are in these communities. Don't shy away about it. Don't feel that you have constantly got to balance the books, the scales of the positives and the negatives. You know, the fear is that if you are teaching overly positive case studies about the inner city and stuff like that, nothing will change. And sometimes you do have to think about, no, this is not good enough. No, this road is not safe enough. No, this housing is really bad quality. Even though I want to say the community is absolutely tightly knit, there are these problems that need to be addressed. So don't be afraid of that political debate. Be balanced, but be political and really teach a complete picture. Real. Thank you, Narendra. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much. Me too, John. Really enjoyed it. Good. Thank you. Thank you.